0: Well, oh, good morning, Crossing Church. How are you doing today? It is good to see you. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. It's good to be with the people of the Lord. And I'm just glad that I get to share this day uh, with you from this vantage point. It, uh, this is Veterans Day weekend. I would uh, just ask if you would indulge me for a second. All of you that are here at all of our locations here, would you please stand if you're a veteran And let us recognize you. Would you please do that right now? Thank you. Thank you. There's so many of us that take uh, for granted the incredible freedoms that we have in this country, and it didn't come by accident. It came because you've continued to protect that, and we thank you and appreciate you. Uh, I want to welcome all of our campuses that are joining with us today from all over these three states and online and inside. So thankful for each and every one of you and a special shout out to our Kirksville location that's celebrating 15 years today. That's awesome. And there's, uh, there's a lot I'd like to uh, preach to you in just a little bit, but I want to share something with you a little bit more personal uh, many of you don't uh, under, know the history of this church, but uh, this uh, church started at its Payson Road Christian Church in 1974. It was March of 1974, and there are 57 families that volu- 57 individuals, excuse me, that volunteered uh, to start this new church from Madison Park Christian Church, which is just over there a ways, and. Um, Uh, young families at the time. And uh, they, uh, uh, Freddie Griffith was the senior pastor at Madison Park at the time, and he had a vision that we would have a church on the south side of Quincy. And uh, of course, he would have never dreamed what would have happened today with with, with what God has done. And so those 57, we have many of those charter members that are still a part uh, of our church, but there were Some at the time who stayed back, even though they wanted to be part of that launch, they stayed back because there was uh, only about 200 left after 57 uh, went to start this location. Two of those people that stayed back at Madison Park were Howard and Connie Bryson. And uh, they stayed back for a time until uh, uh, that uh, Madison Park was able to kind of get their legs back underneath them. And then they came later. And uh, um, Howard and Connie were, uh, well, Howard was on the eldership uh, when I was brought on. So my first experience with uh, the crossing uh, involved him. And uh, he had volunteered, and he volunteered for years uh, to be the treasurer uh, of the crossing. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people in the church that do incredibly important work, but they don't have any desire to be noticed or to, uh, you know, to be mentioned, or to have stage time. They just serve the Lord, and they do it with joy and gladness. And Howard and Connie are two of those people. And uh, uh, they uh, now, if you're at another location, you probably don't see where I'm pointing, but the second row and the two chairs right there in the center second row, they were there, that was kind of their place uh, to sit. And I would always be able to see them first service on, on Sunday morning. Uh, what is so critical to understand about Howard from an eldership and treasurer position is he had the conservative mind of an accountant. He was an accountant for many years, and he had the conservative mind of an accountant, but he also had incredible faith. And so he would talk about how this was like practically impossible, and then he would say, but we can do this. And so many of the really big decisions that were made in the early days of the crossing that allowed us to be 11 locations wide and all these other things were, were established in those, in those early days. And I'm just so indebted to him and so thankful for him and for Connie. And uh, this last week on Facebook, uh, uh, his family posted that he's in hospice care. And you know, there's a part of me that just that really hits me hard. That's very really sad, but you know what? He's gonna graduate. He's going to graduate. And all the things that he's had faith in and he's hoped for and he's desired, God's going to provide that for him. And uh, I just wanted to take a moment uh, out of the sermon time and just be thankful for Howard and Connie Bryson. Would you do that along with me right now? Just be thankful for them. Just I, 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 They might be listening. Family might be listening. Thank you, Howard. Thank you, Connie, for your great faith and for your heart. And I love having examples like that uh, to help instruct my heart on the way I should be. And this series, uh, Handle with Care, is a study in David's heart and how he wanted to be someone after God's heart and what I can take from his life and example to, uh, to infuse into mine. So I'm thinking about that, thinking about the human heart, And it caused me to think about my oldest son, his mother-in-law, has had heart uh, trouble for many, many years, to the point where she was on the heart transplant list. And uh, a year ago, there was a donor, and so she was going to have the opportunity to have her uh, heart replaced with uh, another heart which was a very big deal for her to extend her life. And uh, by the way, she has had that heart uh, transplant and she's doing very, very well. She's doing great, healthier than she's ever been. That's awesome. But but uh, as they were preparing for the surgery, the doctors, the whole team of doctors, they came in and the doctors began to uh, explain to her what she might experience, what things might happen. And uh, through the process, both Uh, in the operation and post-operative, and they said some really interesting things. They informed her that there might be mood changes, that there might be personality changes, that there might be radical differences in appetite, even memories that were not her own. Is that kind of weird to you? that there would actually maybe be something in that donor heart that would be transferred to its new living host. Now, some doctors think that isn't true, but there's actually doctors who not only have noticed this, but have actually written about it. There's a book that she, I asked her for permission to share this, uh, said that she had read called When Death Becomes Life, Notes from a Transplant Surgeon. And what it explains is there's actually four kinds of memory that are that is cellular m- memory, uh, epigenetic memory, DNA memory, RNA memory, and protein memory. In her case, of course, you know the question is: so what changed? Anything happened? I mean, anything? And she goes, you know, every week I wanted to go to Pizza Hut and have a thin crust uh, pepperoni and mushroom pizza. And after I had my heart surgery, I no longer have any desire for a thin crust, pepperoni, and mushroom pizza from Pizza Hut. So that was about it uh, for her. But spiritually speaking, thinking about that, spiritually speaking, uh, we all need a heart transplant. We really do. We've been learning about the human heart, and we've been using David as this example. Uh, because he was described as a man after God's own heart. And I want you to think about that statement that David wanted God's heart instead of his own heart. To be a man after God's heart means you want his, not yours. That he knew that there were a lot of things in his heart that really shouldn't be there or needed to be replaced with something better. And you know what? I think we are the same as David there. I think that any uh, honest person here right now would say, yeah, there's a lot of things in my heart that probably would be a whole lot better if they were replaced with the things of God's heart. I think we might all agree with that to some extent. David's son Solomon told us that we had to be very careful how we treated our hearts, and he, he wrote about it in Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23. He said, above all else, that's pretty big right there, that statement, Guard your heart. Guard it. For everything, a very big word, all-inclusive word, everything you do flows from it. So how are we doing? How good are you at guarding your heart? How open and susceptible is your heart to worldly things, negative things, cynical things, discouraging things? Or are you doing a good job of guarding your heart. That's important. It's an important question for us to ask ourselves because our hearts, it's at the core of everything that we are. And if someone gets a hold of our heart, they get a hold of us. You know, Jesus reasserted that truth in Matthew 15, 18. He said, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart and these defile him. It was said in the context of an argument he was having with the religious leaders who made a big deal about uh, like what kind of utensils you use when you ate, how you prepared your food, and it was all about uh, all, all of this legalism because they said if you didn't do these things in the right way, it that, that it would somehow pollute you because this stuff would come into your mouth yeah, and then it would, it would mess up your heart. And Jesus goes, it's not what goes into a man's mouth or a person's mouth that defiles him. It's what comes out of his mouth because it proceeds from his heart. Makes a lot of sense. Now we've learned, now kind of getting into David, we've learned that David was still just a very young man when he was anointed to become the king of Israel. At the time, Saul was the king, a man named Saul. And David honored Saul as king and served the king by soothing him, playing his harp, and when he was having fits of madness, carrying his armor for him. And it wasn't until David defeated Goliath that something radically changed in Saul's attitude toward David. Uh, David and Saul's son, Jonathan, were best friends at the time. And Saul made David the leader of his army. uh, David won every battle that Saul sent him out to fight. And uh, he was universally loved. David was just loved. He He was loved by Jonathan. He was loved by the soldiers. He was loved by the people of Israel. But something in Saul's heart grew very dark to the point where he wanted to kill David that dark. David ended up running for his life and Saul actually tried to hunt him down. And maybe if we understood the difference between Saul's heart and David's heart, it might inform us, you know, because what are the things that we learn from Saul's heart that we don't want? What are the things we learn from David's heart that we do want? And how do we contrast those two to develop a deeper understanding of how to guard our hearts? That's where I want to take you today. You see, what, when you read the Bible narrative about Saul, uh, his heart didn't start out that way. In fact, he was a guy that people would say had everything he needed to have in order to be a great king. In 1 Samuel 9, it said that he was a man of standing. We'll talk about what that means in a little bit. It also said that he was really handsome and that he stood a foot taller, like a head taller, than everyone else, all of the people around him. So he just stood out in a crowd. He was just a bigger guy and it was a nice looking guy and, and people thought really highly of him. He had a great reputation, all of that. But he's also described in 1 Samuel 10, and it goes deeper than just those outward things. It says, then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him saying, has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? The spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you and you will prophesy. So he was not only a king, he also had the gift of prophecy. And you will be changed into a different person. So obviously there were, Things in Saul's life, and his heart, that needed radical change. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Wow, that's powerful. And as Saul turned to leave Samuel, listen to this, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. So he had all of the, had the whole package. Handsome guy tall guy, man of standing, and then here comes the Holy Spirit, and God's going to give him victory wherever he goes, and he's, and he's got the ability to prophesy as well as that. It's all this stuff. How could he not be a great king? Well, what does it mean to be a man of standing? You know, that's how you're viewed by other people. That's your rep, right? How you're viewed by other people. And being viewed highly by others, that can be a really good thing, but it can also be a bad thing if you crave it, right? He also is viewed as having a humble heart, and the reason he's viewed that way is there's a story of him when he's supposed to be crowned as king, hiding in the baggage and luggage because he, he just really didn't want to do that. And we, we read that and we go, oh, he must have been a humble guy. Was he a humble guy, which would have been a really good thing, or was he more of a fearful guy? He's afraid of taking that responsibility. What it does show you about Saul's heart is even at that time, even though God had changed him, he had a tendency to want to trust in himself rather than in God. The fact that he was tall and handsome would help people to recognize him as king But putting too much trust in yourself can cause a big distraction between what you think of yourself and what God is wanting to do with you and through you, and where the real power and authority comes from. So let's explore Saul's heart and do this comparison and contrast, okay? And I'm going to key in on four stories, uh, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time in those stories, but just to give you an idea of the substance of Saul's heart. Uh, first, he had a heart that leaned toward disobedience to God, to not just trust God and do what he said. The story that goes with this is when he was going to fight a major battle against an invading army, but before they would go into battle, one of the things they would do is sacrifice to God so that you know, the glory would go to God, uh, the glory of the victory would go to God, And they would have like a worship service to God before they would actually go fight the battle. And they're waiting for Samuel to get there because he's a priest. And priests are the ones who can offer sacrifices. And so they're waiting and they're waiting and Samuel's not showing up and he's late. And so Saul starts to get nervous and we gotta go fight this battle and we can't keep waiting forever. And so Saul decides as king that he'll offer the sacrifice. And no sooner does he offer the sacrifice, Samuel shows up and he goes, what have you done? Didn't I tell you that you needed to wait for me? Here's what Saul was doing. I mean, it wasn't just disobedience. Saul was trying to operate as a priest as well as a prophet and a king. And there's only one person in all human history that was all three, prophet, priest, and king. You know who that was? That was Jesus. And he wasn't allowed to take any of that stage time from Jesus. Now that's something that Saul wouldn't have known at the time, but it was enough for him to just be obedient to what Samuel said. And Samuel said, because you've been this disobedient in this very important thing, your uh, heirs will not be on the throne. So he was disobedient and had a disobedient heart. Second thing you see is that he had a heart full of pride and selfishness. Uh, that where he thought he knew better than God, (laughs) like an egocentric heart. There's a story about him fighting a battle with a uh, a nation uh, or a group of people called the Amalekites. They went to war against Israel and he was going to fight for Israel. And uh, Israel succeeded in the battle. But Samuel had instructed Saul that because of the incredible sin of the Amalekites over so many years, he wanted them wiped completely out. So they were supposed to kill every soldier and they were supposed to uh, kill even the animals. Uh, The Bible uses the term the ban, under the ban. In other words, these are, uh, you, you have to do this. Well, Saul started thinking in his own mind, some of these animals are really nice. It's a shame to have to kill all these animals. And why do I have to kill the king? Wouldn't it be better if the king had to pay homage to me than other people would realize just how great a king I am? So what does he do? He spares the best animals, and he spares the king. And I remember the story where Samuel comes back, and Saul goes, look, we've defeated the army. Look at all we've done. Isn't this great? And Samuel says, uh, what is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of cattle? Did you forget what I told you? Did you forget what God told you? He was full of pride and selfishness. Number three, he was full of jealousy. Now we're going to delve into that deeper in a moment because David became a scapegoat for all of his shortcomings. He wanted to blame David for everything that was going wrong inside of his heart and number four he had a heart full of fear he had a heart full of fear he trusted in himself and he didn't trust in god now this is how i know this because the last battle that he fought he died in and uh he wanted to know if he was going to win the battle or lose the battle ahead of time well the person that you're supposed to talk to would be a priest or a prophet and seek the answer from god but but you know what he did he went to a woman who was a witch, the witch of Endor, which is a term that the Old Testament uses for a medium. Someone who practices the art of divination, being able to foretell the future, even though he was a prophet himself. Now, what's absolutely interesting about this is that he had already made it a capital offense to be a medium. Except for some reason, even though, mediums were either expelled from the country or killed, Saul happened to know of one that was still around. So he was the exception instead of the example. Do you see what I'm saying? He goes to this witch of Endor, will I win the battle? And something happens that he doesn't expect. And I don't think the witch of Endor expected it either because Samuel, even though he had died and been dead a while, he appears and says, By this time tomorrow, Saul, you're going to join me. This is your last day on earth. He was fearful. Now David's heart was very different than that. And we see it in two times that David had the opportunity to defend himself by killing Saul when he was hunting him, but did not do it. But before those opportunities, those two opportunities, David had no doubt that Saul wanted to take his life. In fact, Saul had tried to take his life four times before that. The first time, we read about in 1 Samuel 19, 1 to 3, it says, Saul told his son Jonathan. Now, by the way, David was given Saul's daughter in marriage. He was married to the princess. He was married to Saul's daughter which makes him what relative to Saul? He's Saul's son-in-law, right? Saul has a son named Jonathan, which is David's best friend, but it's not just his best friend, it's his what? It's his brother-in-law, right? Saul told his son Jonathan, the father-in-law told the son-in-law, all the attendants, to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David, and warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning, go into hiding, and stay there. And I'll go out and stand with my father in the field where you are, I'll speak to him about you, and I will uh, tell you what I find out. Saul was already plotting to kill David and had already assigned people to kill him. The second time he tried... Uh, David was playing the harp for him to soothe him and he picked up a javelin and tried to pin him to the wall with it. Threw it at David. David dodged a a javelin throw across the table. The third time, Saul sent soldiers to his daughter's house and son-in-law David's house to kill David while he was in bed. But David escaped his grasp. The fourth time, Uh, Word got to David that that Saul was trying to kill him. And so he ran to Samuel, the high priest, or the priest, uh, uh, and God intervened three times to prevent the soldiers that Saul sent from killing him. And that time, Saul lost it. He tried to kill his own son, Jonathan. He found out that there were a group of priests that had protected David and helped him to escape, 85 of them, and had them all massacred. Eventually, David did escape, and he went to a place called En Gedi. Now, I've been to En Gedi a couple of times. It's a really interesting place in the southern part of Israel. Uh, It's at the north end of the Dead Sea, so it's all desert and rock and sand and very lifeless and you go uh, a little bit east from the Dead Sea, there's a pathway, you can walk it, and there's like nothing, nothing growing or living, and then suddenly, you see this green. And it's an oasis, and there's this beautiful waterfall and a, a beautiful pool, and there's you know caves and stuff all around there, and it's like, like what you would expect in your mind, it's an oasis. Well, that's where David was hiding. He was hiding in En Gedi. Well, Saul hears about it. This is what happens in uh, 1 Samuel 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000, able young men, 3,000, an army, from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way and a cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Okay. That's a pretty vulnerable position, right? In a cave, relieving yourself. David and his men were far back in the cave. Oh, David's back there. And his men. And the men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And he said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? "'To this day, this day, you've seen with your own eyes "'how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. "'Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. "'I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord "'because he is the Lord's anointed. "'See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. "'I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. "'See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate "'that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion.' I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. (coughs) So Saul realizes that his life's been spared and takes his 3,000 soldiers and goes home. But he doesn't stay there long. He hears that David is in the desert. So he brings that same army out again to kill him again. 1 Samuel 26, 7-11. So David and Abishai went to the army at night. So he's camped out in the desert. Saul is, in tents. And David is out there in the desert. And so at nighttime, they creep into the camp. And there was Saul lying asleep. Inside the camp, with his spear stuck in the ground near his head, Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. And Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. Like I'll give him a merciful and quick death. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and a water jug that are near his head and let's go. And the same thing happens. He calls out to Saul. He goes, look at this. Here's your spear. Here's the water jug next to your head. I could have taken your life, but I spared you again because I will not kill the Lord's anointed." Each of these experiences shows you that David has a much different substance to his heart than Saul. Let's look, look at them. We talked about Saul was disobedient, right? David instead was very obedient. He recognized that God had placed Saul as king and he was not going to usurp the authority of Almighty God. He was going to stay obedient to God. Number two, Saul had a prideful and selfish heart, but not David. He had a humble heart. He knew that he had been anointed to replace Saul. He could have justified killing him, but he didn't because that was up to God to do. He wasn't gonna do that himself. He was leaving that responsibility to God. Number three, unlike Saul, he wasn't jealous. He didn't want anything that Saul had to give him. All he wanted was what he received from God's own hand. And number four, unlike Saul, he wasn't fearful. Although his life was on the line, he trusted that God would protect him. Now, here's what I want to do. I want us to apply that to ourselves, okay? You just got a lot of Bible lesson. Well, what does that matter for us? What can we take from the stories that we learn about Saul's heart and the contrast to David's heart so that God could do something in our heart so that we would guard our hearts? so that we could be like David, a person who wants to be after God's heart. Number one, keep God on the throne of your heart and your life. Keep God on the throne of your heart and your life. You hear Clayton say it a lot, God's way is the best way. Now, a lot of us want God to be in our heart. We want God to be in our life. We might say, I want Jesus in my heart or I want Jesus in my life, but that's really not far enough. God doesn't just want to be in your heart. He doesn't want to just be in your life. He wants to be on the throne of your heart and your life. That's why when people get baptized at the crossing, we don't say, because I want Jesus as my savior. We say, because I want Jesus to be my savior and my Lord. We don't want him to just occupy a place in our heart. We want him to be in charge of our heart. And you know what? That's an easy decision then to do what God wants rather than what I want if he's the one making the decisions. Jesus said in Matthew six thirty three, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. That he has to come first, his kingdom and his righteousness As long as David kept God first, God took care of David's needs. Listen to me. He'll do the same for you. If you keep God first in your life, he will take care of you. He'll protect you. David really wasn't honoring Saul by sparing his life. He was honoring God by sparing Saul's life. Ultimately, this is all about honoring God. It's not very lateral, it's pretty vertical. Number two, don't let the cares of life become obstacles between you and God. You need to turn those obstacles over to him. In Matthew 6, 25, Jesus said, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life. Boy, isn't that easy to say and hard to do? Don't worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you'll wear, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. You know, Jesus goes on to say, consider the lilies of the field, consider the birds of the air. You know, they don't, look what, they don't participate in any of these things and yet your heavenly father takes care of them. And if he can, can take care of that, don't you think he can take care of you? You need to recognize that all you have is coming from God and make sure that he's the one getting the credit for that. And when you face a challenge, trust that God is with you and he'll take care of you. You know, we can look at the relationship between David and Saul and we might argue back and forth whether or not David forgave Saul. But what does that mean? I think a lot of us, we misunderstand forgiveness. We use statements like forgive and forget, which is a complete lie because as much as you like, might like to forget, you can't, right? Or you might think that uh, uh, if, I, if I ask forgiveness, uh, then I should be restored in some way, but that doesn't mean everything goes back to the way it was. And the relationship between David and Saul didn't go back to the way it was, but David was not gonna let that become an obstacle between him and God, because the primary thing in forgiveness isn't this way, the primary thing is this way. Because when we don't forgive, we don't have a heart that's forgiving to other people, it creates an obstacle between us and God. That bitterness that we let take root in our heart, it can just crack our faith in half over time. And David wasn't gonna let that happen. So his forgiveness was, I'm not, I am not gonna retaliate against you. The Lord can do what he needs to do with you, but I'm not gonna let that become an obstacle between me and my heavenly father. So don't let the cares of life become obstacles between you and God. Number three, put God first in the most valuable things in your life. Put him first. Matthew 6, 21 says, for where your treasure is, Jesus says, there your heart will be also. That's true, right? But it makes you think, what is it in my life that I treasure? Well, I don't think that's that hard to answer. Here are the three things that I treasure, ready? My time, my relationships, and my money. Would you agree with that? Like the three biggest things that you might treasure in your life, your time, your relationships, and your money. But what's the problem of the way I said that? It's really not my time. Because every moment of my life I'm living out, I'm living by the grace of God who gives me that time, right? It's not my time. Really aren't your relationships because God has orchestrated your life in such a way that those relationships aren't accidental. God knew about those relationships before you do. So they're really not yours either. And what about your money? It was never your money. You're a steward of what God has given you, right? Listen to me. It's harder to lose something when you realize it was never really yours in the first place. When you realize that God allowed you to use it, but it's not really yours. Saul was driven mad by trying to hold on to things that were really never his to begin with. The difference in the two hearts is that David put them in their proper place. If I wanna have a heart that imitates what David wanted to have a heart after God, I need to make sure that God stays on the throne of my heart and life, I I need to be careful to guard my heart so that the cares of life do not become obstacles between me and God, and I need to put God first with the most valuable things in my life. And you know what? That can begin here right now and right here. You can't change the substance of your heart by yourself. And some of you were listening to me describe Saul, and you maybe identified more with him. Sometimes I do too. But you can give your heart to God, and then he can do things with your heart that you could never do by yourself. And you do that when you come into an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ. How are you doing guarding your heart? How are you doing allowing God to transplant the things of his heart into your heart? We're moving to a time of decision. Now there's some of you that are here right now and what you're doing is you're trying to be the hero of your own story. You think that if you could just muster up enough of whatever that is, you could set things right in your life. You could get it worked out. Whatever it is, whatever vision you have of what you want to be or supposed to be. But I'm telling you, Every time you turn over a new leaf, it looks the same on both sides. And some of you are pretty frustrated because you've done that a lot. You know, and, and maybe you've tried to access God and say, you know, I want God in my life so that I can have. <laughs> you ever watch the, I mean, there be football all afternoon, right? And you see these guys, and they go in the end zone and they give glory to God. You ever see that? They go in the end zone and they put their hands up in the air and it's like, "You to you God, to you God." You ever see them do that when they lose? Or they fumble the ball. <laughs> Giving the glory to you God. You ever see? You ever see? Yeah, you, know, you don't see them celebrate when something doesn't happen the way that they want it to happen. And a lot of times, we want things to happen the way we want them to happen. We'll give glory to God then. But you know, God should get the glory in all things, right? Not just the things that make you feel good about yourself. That means He's on the throne, you're not. And some of you are just weary. You don't want to admit it. You, You try to show everybody else that you look great and everything's great when it's not great because you keep trying to do this yourself in your own power, in your own strength, and you can't do it. That's what Saul was doing. He was relying on himself for these things when he had all of the access to God and all the gifting from God, and he didn't. So do you. You have access to God right now, but you have to come into a relationship with him. For some of us today, what we need to do is just say, I surrender, I give up. I need you. There's gonna be somebody right there, up there by the baptistry that would love nothing more than to talk to you about what next steps are in an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And there's nobody stopping you today, but you. Some of you are going, well, I don't wanna be hypocritical. Well, you are. So am I. That's the human heart. But God will change all that He can change all that. The beautiful thing about the human heart is that someday it's going to be a perfect heart. I told you about Howard Bryson earlier, and that he's on hospice care, which means he's not going to be that much longer for this world. But you know what's going to happen in that moment? When that heart, that human heart, that flesh heart beats its last? God is going to finish his work. He's going to give him a new heart and a new body and a new mind all at once. And he's going to fill his lungs with the air of heaven. And you can have that if you come to Christ. He'll finish what he starts. Some of you here today, you you have a relationship with Christ. You made that decision, but you're still struggling. You're struggling right now. You're not having a good day or a good week or a good year or a good decade. The fact is you can come to him now. You know, that's not a one-shot deal with God. He's there every day. There's stuff in your heart that needs to change. Sometimes we get caught up in the lower story. It's like, you know, I don't know, circumstances take you down into the basement of your lower story, right? And while you're down there, somebody locks the door and you can't get back out, right? But I have a savior who holds the keys and he can unlock that door and he can get you out of that basement. If you humble yourself and come to him, that's what these steps are for, for you to come up and just humble yourself before the Lord and let him have his way. You can do that today. Nothing's stopping you. Let the burden fall off. He'll take it. He'll clean up the mess after we're gone. Would you stand with me and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that all the strongholds and all the defense mechanisms in our hearts right now, where we try to guard our own heart, but we're not trusting in you to guard that heart. I pray that, Father, before you, they would all come down and that you would have total and complete access to the hearts of your children, these your children, and you would do something amazing and incredible in each and every one of us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.